I am Cindy Bergman. I am the chair of psychology and a professor in the department. And I want to welcome you to this second session of our series, Seasons of Change, Support and Care for Yourself and for Others. And we're going to spend today and the next session discussing ways in which you can age in a more resilient way. And it's our hope that over the course of the next few weeks, that we can build a virtual community and connect with people globally to reflect the types of things that we're going to talk about today. And we hope that you'll find your experience with Seasons of Change to be insightful, to be engaging, and we invite you to stay to connect not only to us here at ThinkND, but to share the training and what you've learned with family and with friends. Before we get started, though, I really want to thank all of the co-sponsors of the Seasons of Change Support and Care for Yourself and Others, the Department of Psychology, the College of Arts and Letters, the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This series is also co-sponsored by Notre Dame Senior Alumni, Notre Dame Women Connect, and the class of 1983, who are celebrating their 40th reunion this year. We very much appreciate um, your willingness to share this series. I also want to thank all of the team members behind the scenes that have put in so much time to make this happen. They've lent their talents. They've been eager and willing to take this program really from its original conception and really brought it to life. This week, I'm really delighted that we have the opportunity to continue this Seasons of Change support and care, not only for yourself, but for others, with our Second Life session. And this time we're talking about Caregiving 101. And whether you are new to caregiving or you have lots of experience, this live session will give you some practical advice on key ways to not only care for that other person, but care for yourself at the same time. So I'm really excited to welcome my colleague, Nancy Michael, who joins me in the discussion today about caregiving. As a little bit of background, Nancy joined us in December of 2014. She served as the director of the undergraduate studies for the neuroscience and behavior major at Notre Dame. Dr. Michael works to develop and imp implement science approaches that aim to mitigate the impact of toxic stress, not only on individuals, but on communities as well. So her research uses a community-based change theory model to work with community organizations and helping to develop population-specific strategies that support organizational and community efforts in becoming more trauma-informed, if you will. So thank you very much for being here today. Today, we're going to discuss maybe first steps for new caregivers. Many of you may have a lot more experience than Nancy and I do, but I think that is the beauty of the question and answer period. What does it look like? How do you work alongside siblings or a spouse? How do you, as a caregiver, ask for support? What resources or skills do you need to know about? What sort of frame of mind might be especially helpful? And also, we'd like to talk a little bit about what the 
experience of care receiving is like. That is, how to understand the ways that receiving care from other people with grace is really a gift, especially to the caregiver who's trying to provide that support, and how we can strengthen our connections with our loved ones through both caregiving and care receiving. Nancy, my research is much more rooted in psychology and the psychosocial aspects of stress and issues like caregiving. Your approach is very different, a much more sort of physiological, even brain functioning approach to these issues. And I'm excited for this conversation because I think understanding the way these things come together, that is, why do these things happen in such a way, is really informative as to why is this effective or no matter how much I struggle, why is it not effective? Maybe I could give you just a minute to explain this acronym NEAR and how that shapes the work that, that you do. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. And thank you also for the opportunity to be here. It's really a pleasure. Congratulations, class of 83. Happy anniversary. So NEAR science. So the acronym for NEAR, I'm a neuroscientist by training, a behavioral neuroendocrinologist, which is just a bunch of words that don't mean a whole lot. And then we're going to throw another acronym that doesn't mean anything, NEAR, which is an acronym that stands for neuroscience, epigenetics, ACEs, which is an acronym within an acronym, which is terrible, adverse childhood experiences, and resilience. So that's neuroscience, epigenetics, ACEs, and resilience. And so from a neuroscience perspective and from, from an experience perspective, that acronym really just aims to capture all of the ways in which the human nervous system, the brain and body, really expect certain experiences from the environment over the course of a lifetime. And so that the distance then between the expectation and the actual lived experience induces a vulnerability right, within the system, right? And so these can look really different for individuals and over time. And so what I found, so we have lots of the basic science mechanism and physiology of how that happens and what some outcomes of that are. But the real, the root and the hope of the work that I do at this point is to take all of that knowledge base out of the academy and put it into the hands of individuals and community members because it really can be life-changing. You mentioned like struggling with stuff, like when you know that the the brain has expectations. So I might be feeling badly. Anyway, we can get into more of those things. Yeah. So that's my hope is to... Okay, you know. that, that I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> I guess I would like to start on as positive a note as possible and really talk a little bit about the positive aspects of caregiving. Not because caregiving is always positive or even ever positive, but we need to frame what we do or how we receive support in a positive way if we're going to have any chance of doing this gracefully. And I guess I'd like to share a personal example, if you'll in indulge me for a minute. I had a brother who had um, multiple sclerosis, and he was diagnosed when he was 24, and he died when he was 35. He had the progressive, non-remitting form of the disease. And he was pretty much bedbound by the time he was in his late 20s. And so my parents, who were probably in their 
late 50s and 60s by that time were providing him with 24-hour care. He was a big guy, or he had been. He was heavy. He was difficult to turn, to, to take care of. And as he became more and more infirm, he did eventually reach a point that he could no longer talk. If you, he could communicate, but you would ask him yes, no questions, and he would blink one for yes and two for no. But during that time, I was just, I lived 1,500 miles away. I know my mom is taking care of him, and I think she's having some health problems herself, some problems with her back, which is likely secondary to this caregiving. But I kind of ride in on my white horse, and I say, Mom, I think it's time that you need to put him in a nursing home or some type of facility. This is too much for you to do. And her response was that as long as he knows who I am, this is what I want to be able to do. And I thought then I need to sit alongside her. I need to help her care for him so that I can really appreciate what that experience is like. And it was one of those sort of life-changing experiences. My, my mom and my brother had such a positive relationship. Even though he could hardly communicate, he was so grateful for everything that she did for him. I walk in the room and she's listening to Deep Purple and White Snake, or she's listening to music that I'm like, whoa, that is not my mother. Well, I spent a week helping her take care of him. Never thought I would be catheterizing my brother. Never thought I would doing a lot of this hands-on care. But it really was a beautiful experience. I left knowing exactly why she was doing it. And it changed my frame of mind in a much more positive way. How can I help her with what's so meaningful, with what she wants to be able to do for my brother? What can I do to facilitate that? Every time there was a break at the university, I was out there dragging my kids along with me so that they could also get that experience. But I feel like it was life-changing for me. And it was so important to her. And he died at home. And I think that is what she wants. The other thing that I took from that, just as a side note, is I could never put her in a nursing <laughs> because I had to pay it forward. I had to be there to help her in the same way that that she had helped my brother. And I guess just a couple of, of take-home things is I think that caregiving really changes a relationship. It's a much more intimate relationship than you may have had with someone before, especially if there's a lot of physical care that needs to happen, bathing and that type of thing. I think just really helps you get to know them in, in a very different type of way. Opportunity to potentially share stories, to give back to the person. And so I guess that I want to highlight ways to think about these experiences. I'm not saying it was always positive for my mom. I'm not saying it wasn't stressful. It wasn't physically difficult. It was physically difficult. But there was also beauty in it and this positivity. And 
I would think about this in a couple of ways, Nancy, just in, in terms of things that, that we've talked about it. And one of them is, it's easy for me to say, just be positive in this relationship. Think about it as a positive thing. Walk on the sunny side of the street. That will solve all of your caregiving problems. But maybe you could share with me a little bit about why that doesn't necessarily work in those simple advice-giving sorts of ways. Yeah, yeah. And I think what I hear are two separate pieces, right? What is it about it that makes it fulfilling? And then why isn't it always easy? Yeah? Okay. So back to this whole like mind-blowing, the nervous system actually has expectations of the world around. And one of the most fundamental and foundational that we tend to disregard, particularly as we age, is that the human nervous system expects to gain its well-being from relationship, right? From this close proximity, not only in like physical space, but also this emotional space. So you talked about this intimacy that occurs in caregiving relationships. And it's really easy, I think, for us to understand it or wrap our minds around it in a, in a, in a caregiving relationship that, uh, that's like infancy on up, right? Like infants are totally helpless. They're going to die. Like, of course, we're going to care for them. And that's wonderful and fulfilling. But that expectation of relationship grows and like it doesn't go away once we turn 10 or once we turn 13 and we just don't want to listen to our parents anymore, right? Like that expectation of proximity and relationship is a constant throughout a lifetime. It grows and develops and changes over time. So the expectations mature along with the nervous system. But that kind of foundational piece of, right, that our cells, like our cellular being actually longs to be in relationship. And so I think that's why, right, that there are these beautiful moments, right, and why friendship is so fulfilling and why these, the, especially for a, right, so the, that you lost your brother before the passing of your parents, right, is one of defies the natural order kinds of moments or seasons, right? So the, the desire for your mom to maintain, right, like, completely understand that, right? Like we're completely reorganized. But that also doesn't mean that that it's all easy either, right? And so that another expectation of human is that we're not only in relationship as individuals, but we're in relationship in communities. And so often these caregiving relationships in this day and age in the United States in 2023 tend to happen in a vacuum, right? So it's the burden of a singular person instead of a community, which is also not what we expect as humans and people. So does that? Yeah, I think that's really, it's really very helpful. I think that the pieces that feel valuable is really being able to give your life purpose and meaning. And one of the pieces that I found this was done when my mother died. Sorry to share so many stories. She would tell her stories. And she would tell her stories over and over again. She had her set of stories that I think defined her life. And based on what I know about aging and this idea of a life review that we're trying to make meaning of our lives, especially as we're approaching death. And so she was sharing the story. And I think she was also trying to if you think of from generation to generation, the family lore, the, the background of your life that maybe you didn't necessarily remember, 
And then she would also tell me about what she wanted her funeral to be like. And I would listen. And then one day my brother said, yeah, mom says, you know exactly what she wants her funeral to be like. And I'm like, I have got to be taking notes and paying a lot more attention to this conversation. But I think a positive piece of it is the sharing of those stories, the sharing of her life and how she made meaning of that. And I felt like that was just a really important to me. I think it was important to her. And again, maybe a different way of thinking about the intimacy and really getting to know someone in a way that, that perhaps you didn't before. But I liked this notion that you brought up about caregiving not really happening in, in a vacuum. And I think there are three components that maybe we should chat a little bit about. One is actually the caregiver, so the person who's providing the care. So we could talk about that role. And the other is the care receiver, that is the person who needs care. And then I think there are these other individuals who can really provide help to the caregiver or extra help to the care receiver. Um, But maybe talking a little bit about providing care, developing some of those skills, and then we can circle back to needing care and helping the caregiver. Yeah. Yeah. So from a, I am one who has experience as a caregiver of children and I am aging into caregiving for my parents. And I think something that we had talked about previously with this idea and the strength of intergenerational support, right? That that again, from a human human perspective, right? Like the expectation is, of course, I'm going to have lots of people around that are going to help show me how to do this. And so the idea of aging into a time where we are providing care for the ones that cared for us, there's not only this, we could talk about how previous relationships can inform how we might approach how excited we are, how willing we are to be able to step into the caregiver role. But there's also this idea that there's like implicit expectation. Like, of course, that would be something that we would do, right? But it doesn't, being willing to do it and knowing how to do it become two different things, right? So there's the emotional, what we talk about as emotional valence, right? There's this emotional valence as to whether or not we, we've had the experiences and the previous intimacy with somebody so that are we willing to lean into the new stage or not? But then there's this really practical, like, how do you learn how to put in a catheter? I don't know. And what is the relationship like in terms of how close or how honest or how transparent have those relationships been in the past to even ask those kinds of questions? Is it something, right, from a parental perspective, right, that I, that there's, I know in conversations with my parents, that there's tremendous mourning of their own what they are experiencing emotionally are the loss of their ability to care for. Uh, and if you ask older adults, if you ask what their number one fear is just about the aging process, it's becoming a burden on their families. You know, that I think everyone would like to live a full and robust life, die in their sleep and never create any, any disharmony in the family. I think these are also really important processes. If you think about losing someone suddenly, you don't have that opportunity to grieve 
over a period of time as you're seeing someone fail. And I think that developing those caregiving skills occur at multiple levels. One might be just having the knowledge. And I know my parents initially had a visiting nurse or aide, someone who came in and took care of him, but they decided that they wanted to learn those skills themselves. And there are opportunities where you can learn basic caregiving capabilities that include some of the, I'm going to say, maybe more nurse-like things. You learn how to transfer somebody, or you can learn how to ensure that they don't spend too much time in a single position so they get bed sores and all the complications associated with that. There's equipment that can be available. And much of that is covered by Medicare. So that is really beneficial. Sometimes we have to, we can't meet those needs. Sometimes the care is too great and we do have to put them in some type of a residential facility. And you're not a failure if you have to do that, but you also don't want to abandon them. I know I worked in a nursing home as a social worker because of my interest in the elderly. And I would hear families say, I've heard if I don't come visit for two weeks, it'll help them settle in better. And I'm like, stop. They'll feel like they've been abandoned, that you put them here and now you're done. Even you can continue that caregiving, even if it's not the physical, but very much the social and the support type relationships, even if you can't literally do some of the actual caregiving. But I think it is hard for people to ask for help. It's hard for people to give up control. People want to stay in the environment that they're in as long as they possibly can, where sometimes a move to assisted living early on might keep them more independent longer. But we want to be at home. We want to be with our things. We want to live with the memories and the things that we love in close proximity to friends, our family, our neighbors, our physician, our religious faith, et cetera. We want to be able to stay close to that. And I don't know if there's any sort of translational things that you might be aware of that kind of explain that not wanting to give in to care that we may need. Sure. But we'll be ready to go on a little bit of a journey. Sure. So there are a couple of things that came up that just that kind of resonate that, that from a from a parent perspective that like the way that the nervous system reorganizes with the birth of a child reorganizes the care like that original kind of caregiving relationship to be the one to protect and provide and right it is it is so embedded in everything that we desire to do. And again, I think one of the one of the really kind of mind bendy frame shifts is that the emergent properties of trillions and trillions of cells working together create this desire, right? We always think about there's this brain myth that floats out there that we only use 10% of our brain. They made a terrible movie about it a number of years ago called Lucy, right? But this 10% of our brain just really has to do with the executive function part, which has to do much more with neural real estate, like the amount of neural mass that is dedicated to executive function. 
part. So this is related because that means that 90% of the brain is working all of the time. If it didn't, we'd have brain damage, right? But that 90% of the brain is all of this kind of bottom-up emotions and valence and memories and skills and all of these ways in which we learn over the course of our lives that in this context, does anybody, I know we can't actually see the folks that are on the call, has anybody ever been into a place where they spent a lot of time in when they were younger and you walk into it and all of this stuff comes flooding back, right? Yeah. And so memories exist. So there's a picture back there. It looks like a really branchy tree, right? That's a blown up picture of a neuron. So memories exist in the actual structure of our nervous system, right? And so when we step into a sensory environment, that sensory environment provides this external stimulus to activate all of this function in the nervous system that kind of percolates up from the bottom and then eventually gets to that 10%. So we're able to articulate it as a memory, right? But all that stuff lives there all the time. And so when you think about an aging system, an aging system, which so much, some of that life experience lives across this network and being in those spaces keeps those parts of us alive. Even in the absence, you were talking earlier about the ways in which you were able to learn these kind of seminal stories of your mom's identity, that those that those pieces of our history, right, that by embodying those, right, those are what give us strength, right, this kind of cultural and intergenerational strength, even when the person isn't there, right? So to be able to have those transmitted across generations and live in us, and so much of the ability to live in us, the way that we keep our memories, the way that we have that power around us is through being in an environment, because a lot of them are just generated in an environment. So when we're talking about an aging system and taking that aging system that's already afraid of being a burden, gets frustrated because they, I think about my mom can't open jars anymore. It makes her, she gets so, I mean, it's this really simple thing. Like, of course I can open a jar, but her grip strength is not what mm -hmm. it is. And so it's these little ways in which we as individuals have a lifetime of competency so we're adapting and adjusting our expectations of ourselves, sometimes with frustration, sometimes with grace. But the space, right, the, the strength that the space provides, because that's where so much of life happened, right? Yeah. Taken from that space, we lose that environmental stimulus to keep that space alive with us. So there's an additional mourning that takes place then when we're removed from that space that implicitly just fills us with the life that we've led. I think it's really very easy to lose sight of that, to think, take a few things with you, take the things that will remind you or take your family. They can share those stories with you. You know what? I think we do lose sight of the importance of your things, your space, the memories that are stored in that environment. So I appreciate you sharing that. I would like to talk a little bit about families, though. And we can talk about families in terms of opportunities for sharing, caregiving, et cetera. And we can talk about families as it relates to pitfalls. And so everything that I have ever learned is that if you have problems in your family, 
disagreements, historical. I don't even know what to say. But you have a history with your family and it wasn't a good one. Caregiving only makes that worse. And making decisions about parents, agreeing on decisions about caregiving, to who does the caregiving? Is it, should it be someone's responsibility? Does someone provide money and someone else provides time? How all of those relationships play out, I think, is very indicative of how the family has functioned probably all across the way. But it really brings it to the forefront. Caregiving is a situation, especially if it's caregiving for parents and siblings are having to agree. I think it can be especially problematic. Any thoughts about that? How maybe our history of frustration with members of our family and instead of saying, I need your help with this, you say something like, yeah. He's never going to show up and be there. It's going to be my job because it's always been that way type of thing. Any way in which sort of those kinds of behaviors have physiological roots to them? Sure. It's hard to answer for the day. I know. Yes, of course they do. Yeah. And in very much the same way that this kind of like environmental stimulus can make us feel all the feels, the person stimulus can make us feel all of the feels instantaneously as well. It takes about 100 to 200 milliseconds for like the presentation of the person to make us feel all the feels, right? And so exactly to your point, that life course of history and what that relationship has looked like and how it's existed over time, that absolutely comes to the forefront in these caregiving decisions but in a probably exacerbated kind of way because everybody, because there's a stress dose moderation, right? That like in, as we titrate, as we increase that stress dose, the likelihood that that executive function capacity is going to stay online decreases. And so again, we use hundred percent of our brain hundred percent of the time as our stress dose increases, we lose access to that neural real estate that enables us to be thoughtful, regulated, strategic and proactively thinking and this long-term goal setting stuff is diminished and like actively, right, by other parts of the brain as stress increases. So when you're dealing with or when you're trying to manage is probably, right, the feeling health of a loved one on the other side of a caregiving relationship or even like the birth of a child, right, that doesn't ever solve problems either. Right. <laughs> Things aren't going so well. Let's have a baby, right? That's a terrible idea. That that this it, the stress dose moderation. So whatever the valence and dynamic of that relationship has always been, it will be that in spades, yeah. right? And even if it's been a positive relationship in the past, you're managing right in end of life decisions. You're managing the stress and the morning of the end of life. So in the best case scenario. We might come from a history of a positive relationship and a supportive relationship that will be tested and strained in this really stressful and heartbreaking season. And then, yeah. Yeah, I do think that the whole, the entire last session that we had in this series was about, was about stress. And anybody who might be interested in that, I think there's a webinar and there's a podcast that is available. So we talked about these stress-related strategies, but I think there are stressors that are specific to caregiving. 
it's not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's hard to take care of someone who's always taken care of you, for example, if we're looking at a parent or even to have to take care of an adult child. That's not in our sort of life plan. We don't think that's the way things are going to happen. We're not talking this time a lot about Alzheimer's per se, but if you're caring for someone who doesn't even know who you are anymore or asks the same questions over and over again and think it is so disheartening because there's someone that has loved you, that you've loved, and and you've lost that really important connection. And I think, as I mentioned earlier, we're grieving. As the person is grieving their own life and their own losses, the caregiver is also grieving along with them as their abilities are declining or as they're moving or toward death. There's so much time pressure. Uh, you may have a million other things that you need to do, and it makes it hard to be there in the moment for that person when you're thinking about multiple other things. And it's physically can be hard work as well. And it can interfere with your current family relations. So if you're spending all your time taking care of mom, how does that play out with your spouse or your children? This whole idea of stress, the potential that caregivers can get very isolated. The depression is very high in caregivers. People are sleep deprived because they may have to get up. We remember being sleep deprived if we had young children, but you can be sleep deprived if you're providing caregiver care for someone else. There could be a financial strain. We may have to cut back on our work hours, which impacts our income. There are these whole host of stressors that can be spawned by becoming a caregiver. So it's not just that you're providing care, but there's all of these other things. You have to tell your friends, no, I have this obligation, can't do something. And I know that stress can have a big impact on just our brain functioning in general. And yeah, you know, I guess I'd first like to talk a little bit about that and that maybe we can chat a little bit about some self-care, how can we can take care of ourselves during this time. Yeah, so just in terms of the impact of stress on brain function, it messes it up. There's that that could have said right. that. So again, so the stressful things, right? That like we perceive stress based off of things that we've learned over time. And then in the absence of learning, things that are life-threatening will automatically like stress us, right? So again, the valence of relationship of and losing a parent, right, losing or losing anybody else that we're close with is going to be a stressor because it informs and moderates the balance of the circuitry that's been built over time. So quite practically, then, based on the very unique architecture of every individual, kind of what's perceived as a stressor and the like how big that stressor feels is really individual, actually. Yeah, based on our unique history. But ultimately what happens is that based on this kind of environmental input that my brain would understand this context as something stressful. And what that ultimately does then is it communicates with a part of the brain called the amygdala, which most people have heard about at this point in time. Amygdala does much more than just threat detection, but it's this emotional valence thing. It changes its activity to signal different endocrine and physiological systems as like, wait, what body state should I be in right now based on this environment? 
in the context of stress, that amygdala kind of starts a cascade of shifts in brain function and physiological function to gear us up to be right, this fight, flight, or freeze kind of response, right? And as we move deeper into that response, our flexibility of thinking is diminished. Our ability to regulate our emotions is diminished. Our ability to do long-term planning is diminished. Our ability to sleep can be diminished. Or we feel like we want to sleep all the time and we just don't have the motivation or the energy to get up and do. So I don't know if that, does that get to what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, I think it is really helpful. And again, the last one talked a little bit more about some strategies that, that you can use. But I guess I would just like maybe to take our last few minutes before we move to questions to talk about caring for yourself. Yeah. And I think there are suggestions that we can make. We definitely have to take time for our ourselves. We need to prioritize ourselves even. You can't really care for someone else if all of your personal reserves have been depleted in the way that you just described. And so people need a sense of who they are outside of this caregiving role. One way to do that might be to talk to other caregivers. It's the case that people who've never provided care may not have a good idea of what it's really like to do that. And they may provide just these, oh, you should do this, that are not thoughtful or not necessarily helpful. But someone who has been a caregiver can, can say, you know what? You need to get some respite care. I know this great person who can come in. They'll spend the evening with your care receiver and you can go out to dinner. For my mom, it was going to the beauty shop. If she didn't have the opportunity to go to the beauty shop once a week, I, I, I think it's also helpful to think about you, you can become overwhelmed by the caregiving role. And sometimes you just have to focus on this is what I have to do today. I'm not going to worry about what's going to happen tomorrow or next week. This is what I have to accomplish today. And then to try not to worry about the future. Again, that's one of those examples. <laughs> it's easy to say, but maybe much more difficult to actually be able to do. But we were chatting the other day about just some body awareness, mind awareness, ways that we can really help ourselves to re-regulate, recenter, et cetera. And I guess I'm hoping you'll share some of that. Yeah. yeah. And so related to the how we all understand when we're stressed, right? Like there, there are these body changes. And so a lot of self-care, right, which can also be just like a terrible word and there are memes about it and posts about it or whatever. But the but but every single nervous system needs it, right? Every single nervous system needs to not right. We need to be in relationship with one another, which requires not only offering care, but receiving care, right? And there are ways that as we grow, we know how to take care of ourselves and ways that as we grow, we can accept care from other people. And both of those, both of those strategies are really important. And so to your, to the words that you used earlier, right? Developing that, that self-awareness, right? Like how do we tell when we're activated? Do we have a good, do we have a good sense of when we are activated, right? What happens to our bodies? right? Do you breathe faster? Do you breathe more shallow? Do you get like tight and crumpled over? 
Some of us- Do you want to eat chips and chocolate? You want to eat chips and chocolate? (laughs) Yeah. Right? Because all of this stress stuff, the way that changes our physiology, it changes our physiology, right? And so the more awareness, right? And so this is where like the intentionality comes in. The more aware we can be of ourselves, right? The better able we are to have a choice as to what we want to do in those moments, right? That it's not good for any human to just keep doing more and to like knuckle down and like just grin and bear through it and just keep adding stuff along the way. That is like a guaranteed path to being frayed and 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 you said earlier, we cannot provide care if we are not caring for ourselves. Exactly. Exactly. So this is where it's like just as unique as all of the other things, right? That like some people restore. I am a really extroverted introvert. I restore in quiet, right? I want the house to be quiet. I want to be still. I go sit outside where it's just nature. Other people restore through going out. Exercise. Exactly. Music. Yep. Yep. And so again, right? Trust yourself to know yourself the best. And then take that courageous step to do what you know you need to do for yourself and ask for the help that you need to be able to stay whole. Because again, come in full circle, like caregiving and human was never, ever intended or meant to live in a vacuum. I think that's a good stopping place. I've really enjoyed this conversation. We have a few questions. The first one coming from South Bend is when we're caring for loved ones who've had to move to a new space rather than the one that they might have been familiar with them or they lived in for a long time, should we support them in the ways we might for someone who's grieving? Is that a similar kind of loss? And maybe that would be a good question for you, Nancy. Yeah, a similar kind of loss. So I think grief can show up in a whole lot of different ways. And so I don't necessarily, I don't think it would carry like the valence or the weight of a loss of a loved one. But I would say absolutely, right? So my folks actually just recently moved to South Bend and it was an emotional time for everyone to like grieve the loss of this place that they've lived for 30 years. And that my my stepmom was awesome and she was like, but we're here and this is still our house. So her attitude, they knew that they were moving to something. So her attitude and their choice to move to instead of feeling like they were leaving behind was also a giant moderator in how we got to live in this new space, right? Yeah, but- because you could see it, especially if you have to move into a more institutional setting, you could see it not only as the loss of that space, but you're grieving a lot more, your sense yep. of self and identity. And so then it becomes even more complicated. So some of those moves can be really positive. Maybe you've been fairly isolated and you're moving into assisted living. There's activities going on. There's other people. It can be a very positive thing. Also, it can feel like you've lost. I I hear people say this is the beginning of the end of these kinds of moves. So it's a complicated question in that there are lots of ways in which it could be viewed more positively, viewed more negatively. But I think there's always going to be some grieving. Yeah, I would agree too. And if I can just say one more thing, I think it, it the this the response to it doesn't have to right. There's such power in asking a question like, "How are you doing?" It's got to be a lot to make this transition. Yeah, how are you? Yeah. And again, I know that the past history of relationship, right, does that question even fly? 
in the relationship. But so much about this is about creating space to let somebody really intentionally know that you see them and then really intentionally be present for whatever it is that they might be feeling. Because it doesn't matter if I agree with it. If it looks different from my perspective, that doesn't matter because it's the feelings and the experience and the perception of somebody that I love, which my responsibility in that situation is to listen. Yeah, you know, I think that kind of leads us into this second question that what are the practical strategies that we can use to bring joy and bring this positivity into a caregiving relationships? The example that sometimes it seems like the interactions are just all about care. And how do they hold these sort of good and fun parts in spending time together? I'm going to say reminiscing is certainly a really nice way to do that. Sometimes you're engaging in care and you can say, this reminds me of when. And if you can share that particular memory together, you know, that it's not about caregiving. It's not about what you're literally doing. It, you're having this discussion about something that was meaningful for both of you. Yeah. One thing that's very interesting is that what we remember and what we hold really salient may or may not be what the other person does. So I might say, do you remember when this happened? And they're like, no, I didn't ever do that. <laughs> you know, like it's this opportunity to talk through, um, you know, so I'm going to say conversation is always yep. really important, talking in meaningful ways. I think sometimes when we're providing care for people, we talk over them or we see them as maybe not whole people, so to speak. We're not talking with them. We're talking at them. So, so much of that social piece and I think memories, especially positive memories, are really a good way that reminiscing about things in the past is really important. Yeah. And in the same way, like whatever the environmental stimulus is, reactivates it, bringing up those memories. Do you remember the days when pictures existed on thing? No, there are pictures, right? And so that's been one of my favorite things to do with my parents is we go through these old family pictures, right? Not only from when we were kids, but from when they were kids. And we even have some pictures from like my grandparents and great grandparents, right? Generation and time. And and it's it's truly ours. And it's so filling for yeah. everyone, right? Because it's the storytelling that your mom did, right? This is where I come from and this is where you come from. And that makes us all more connected, not only to each other, but like to this depth of history that we have a tendency to disregard as important or relevant. Um, well, we don't really know those family stories. Yeah. My recommendation, though, is once they tell you who's in that picture, quickly write Write it it down. You may or may not remember it, and they may be gone one day. I have one, I have another question. Probably is going to have to be our last one, but this is from a physician. And he is in, he or she, I'm being stereotypical, sorry, have encountered exhausted and burned out caregivers. And as much as they compassionately counsel them to take care of themselves and try to offer other resources, support groups, respite care, they don't really act on them. You know, he can tell them that this idea that we talked about that running yourself down is going to decrease or limit your ability to care for someone. 
feeling like it doesn't really help. Any advice, any suggestions that that we might have? Yeah, yeah. And I think this is a much more meta, I view this as a much more meta conversation and a meta solution, right? That there is so much about our culture, right? So like that kind of like massive force that directs us all in the ways that we do stuff that devalues time, like idle time and self-care and like time with family, right? And so that is not anything that's going to change overnight to be like, so that's actually why all the work that I do, it is exactly to those things, right? Because unless there's this real intentional pivot, cultural cultural shift, then we always follow kind of these paths of least resistance of cultural and social forces. And so again, much more meta, but to be like, here's information, rewire your entire neural network to do that new thing, right? That's, that is an unrealistic expectation of the nervous system. Right. And so how can we think culturally and how can we think as individuals? Right. What example do I set for my peer here at work? What example do I set for my kids at home or in community settings about do I actually take care of myself? Do I right. actually put my phone down? Do I actually say no to meetings after 430 or five so that I can prioritize being at home? And do I go to bed on time? You know what I mean? All of these ways, because if we are not doing those things, it is the way that brains are obligated to work. It's completely foolish that we would expect anybody else to do them either. So, again, it's a much more meta. There's not an easy answer to that. Yeah. One thing I might suggest is doing something for someone else without even being asked. So we have a caregiver that we know that they're struggling. Don't ask if I can do something to help. Do something to help. Be very proactive. Bring the family a meal. Say, I'm going to stay here while you go and do X, Y, or Z. Or is there a good time of day when you feel like you can be away to rest? Or I'm going to be here with your care receiver. Go out and go take a nap. You're still here if you're needed. But again, are there things that we can do to help caregivers? And I think we can always ask ourselves that. And it's important that we do it without being asked. So I think we're out of time. And I very much appreciate, Nancy, your willingness to come and to talk about this. I think probably you and I could talk all afternoon. Maybe we should. (laughs) As a reminder to those of you who are finishing up here, our final session is going to be in, in April. We're going to be talking about aging well and how we can take advantage of the opportunity in our aging process, the growth of our wisdom, our experiences, our relationships, how we can age in a much more positive way. So please feel free to share this series with your friends. We're accepting registrations at thinknd.edu throughout the entire program as each meeting can stand alone. Thank you very much for joining us today. And I really appreciate your time. I hope maybe there's one little thing that that we talked about that that helped you. Thank you. Thank you.